0: Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fer Neiman.
1: Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here today again to talk about a new and exciting topic, evaluating a mobile home park purchase. Are you unsure about how to get started? Do you worry about making a mistake? Do you want to avoid wasting time? Well, in today's episode, we're going to go through a number of things that are going to help you and prepare you to buy a mobile home park. For beginners, this will be invaluable. For experienced buyers and operators, this can serve as a cross-check or as a supplement to your current processes. Today, I'm going to talk about 11 key steps to consider when evaluating a mobile home park purchase. I think when you enter the mobile home park space, the first thing you need to do is you have to identify... The location or the geographic region that you want to invest. So for me, for example, I'm in Kansas City, Missouri here. I typically invest in the Midwest, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois. I've looked at parks and other communities. I actually own pieces of parks in a couple other states. But as far as if I'm going to be the main operator, personally, it's going to depend on a number of factors that will go over here, but really the workload, the risk factor, my need to be involved as an asset manager, but really that location is key. I'm not looking for the mobile home park in Alaska. I'm not even looking for the mobile home park in California or Florida because it's going to be hard for me to watch it, and those are different, different markets altogether. But that's me. Some people have great success with the nationwide portfolio. I'm more of the in-my-backyard, and obviously there's not a lot of, product in my exact backyard or in my city, so I have to go kind of regionally. Um, I've looked at parks nationwide but it's just been harder to pull the trigger for one that's not in my location. So I think that's one thing you need to figure out first when you're evaluating, evaluating a mobile home park is what distance from you are you comfortable with? And then kind of as a supplement to that for locations, which metro size? I've bought mobile home parks and metros that are 10 or 15,000 uh, and also in the millions. So I mean, obviously, most people in the space, most of your competition, are probably looking for the same type places. You know, metros of a hundred thousand plus. You know, diverse economies, all that kind of stuff. But to get in the game, you may need to cave on some of these criteria. I'm not asking you to take on undue risk, but uh, being overly picking your location may be tough. Maybe tough to get in the game. But that's one thing you need to use, you need to fully understand when evaluating mobile home park purchase. The second item. That you need to evaluate is the size of the purchase. By size, I really I mean the purchase price. You know, kind of relative to your appetite. If it's your first deal, you might not want to go after a twenty million dollar deal. You might not be able to go after a twenty million dollar deal. A lot of people try to get going in the you know two hundred fifty to seven hundred fifty thousand dollar price point. Uh, I mean, I looked at a deal last week. It was two thirty five. I looked at a deal two weeks ago. It was twenty five million. So, at this point in my career, I've got a wider range, I guess, for the size of my first purchase, and I've got established investor relationships and things like that where I can put together a team, where five years ago, it was just dad and me, we, we couldn't buy a $25 million park, we, we still haven't bought one at that price, but it's, it's in the realm of possibility where it wasn't five, six years ago, so really you need to look at your risk tolerance, look at your own financial capacity of you and your team. The third item that you should look at when evaluating a mobile home park is the current occupancy, and by that I mean the current number of lots and the current number of occupied lots. And if it comes with park-owned homes, then you should also look at the current number of park-owned homes and, the, and their occupancy. These things are going to really dictate how much work you have, to, uh, how much upside you have, how bankable the deal is, and just, really just overall the, the quality of the park, which goes into a, num- a number of other pra- factors you know, leading into our, our fourth portion or, or step for evaluating a mobile home park purchase, and that's the price reasonableness. So we already talked about size and price and occupancy, but reasonableness meaning is this a fair price or a reasonable price? You know, the, the standard industry is essentially you take lot rent, the formula if you will, lot rent times number of occupied lots, times 12 months, and then times the net operating income ratio, which typically is 60% if the park pays the water and 70% if the tenants pay the water, and that gets your net operating income. So for quick math here, if you're looking at a park that has $300 lot rent times 50 occupied lots, let's say it's 50 out of 60, so 300 times 50 times 12 months, that equals 180,000. That's your gross income or potential gross income. If the tenants pay the water, you take that number times 0.7. That gives you the net operating income of 126,000 now what's the value well you gotta look at the cap rate and this is kind of a you know the key variable here if the cap rate is eight eight percent you divide that hundred twenty six thousand divided by point zero eight the value reasonably is one million five hundred seventy five thousand if the seller is requesting or requiring four million dollars well you're probably a long way away from reasonable but if that if that's a park in oh. Dallas in the metro with a thousand lots, then it might go for a three or four cap. So, you need to cap rates can be subjective as to what's important to you and what's acceptable to you. But uh, really, for price reasonableness, you should look at things like cap rates, look at the cost per lot. I'm looking at a park right now in Illinois, and the cost per lot is like fifteen thousand. That's pretty reasonable for Illinois. Um, some parks are selling at twenty and thirty. Um, if I was looking in urban, urban Dallas again, I'd probably never find a park at fifteen thousand. At least not one that's reasonable or one that's uh, in gr- in good condition. Another thing to look at is when you're looking at cap rate, you're looking, you can look at the historical financials versus the pro forma financials. So sometimes you may have to pay a little bit of a premium. so you got to pay a six cap for a mobile home park, but it's not a big problem. If ninety days in you can submeter the water and increase the rent, and now you're at a nine cap. Nine cap's okay. I've bought parks, numerous parks, in the 10, 12, 15 cap range. I've bought parks that had an infinite cap, meaning there was no net income. I mean, I bought a park that there was $200,000 a year of staff payroll. That was more than the gross income, and these guys were just choking on it. Right out of the gate, I cut all that staff, hired one manager, hired one part-time maintenance guy. That's going to change your income, right? That's going to change your ratios. Another another thing you can look at for price reasonableness is comps and comparable sales, if you can find them or if you can get them get them through a broker, to see you know in this market what are these parks trading for, and that'll kind of help set you up for uh, properly evaluating price reasonableness. The fifth key item for evaluating a mobile home park you should look at is is infrastructure and utilities. I think the I think most everybody would agree that kind of the holy grail is no private utilities, meaning city water, city sewer. Direct build would be even better. And then city streets. And then even better, does the city push the snow on the streets? Does the city repair the streets? They typically would if it's city-owned streets. That level of utilities is is great. You know, a worse set of utilities would be private water lines, private sewer. It gets even worse if it's, you know, a well water system, a septic system on the sewer, a lagoon system on the sewer. And then if the sewer has old, crappy uh, lines like uh, Orangeburg that's a problem as opposed to you know Schedule 80 uh, PVC or on the water lines PEX lines are okay a lot better than old galvanized piping so really evaluating in your initial criteria and really that's what this is all about at the beginning is figuring out your deal criteria what kind of infrastructure and utility setup can you handle and are you willing to tackle it might not be a good idea on your first deal to tackle a park that has master metered electric or master meter gas and private utilities because it's just gonna be a harder riskier animal And if you can't fix or change those, that's also going to impact your exit strategy and your bankability. So infrastructure utilities is very important to figure out what you're comfortable with and regardless of which ones you proceed with, to understand your particular systems. Number six, bankable. Based on the above-mentioned factors, can you get a loan on this deal? Does it make financial feasible sense? If not, do you want to do it? Even if, if, let's say, it does make financial sense, but you can't get it banked. Is the seller willing to do a seller carry? What are the terms that seller carry? Is there recourse on the loan? What's the loan term? What's the amortization? What's the you know overall risk if you can't turn the project around? How much time do you have on the before the balloon or before the loan expires? So really, looking into bankability is important when evaluating a mobile home park purchase. Number seven is what's the market? You know, get a get a feel for the housing need and the housing stats. Uh, I've talked about in other episodes. Uh, doing a test ad, running ads on Facebook to figure out the demand. But also for pricing, you need to have a feel. You can get some of that with your test ad, but also research the stats and go to the local chamber, go to the local city website, economic development website. There's a national website called bestplaces.net. I've had some, I guess, I've got mixed reviews on that website, but I don't really know of a better one. So I think still check out bestplaces.net. Type in, you know, know. Uh, Tuscaloosa, Oklahoma, and then go to, ha- click on housing stats and then drill down and see what the two-bedroom apartment rents are, see what the three-bedroom apartment rents are. Ideally, those can be over $1,000 a month for a three-bedroom apartment. Check out the average home price. Ideally, it's over 100000 and then it'll show you national and state averages. Hopefully, the, the market you're looking in at the, at the micro level has better ratios of, um, vacancy and, you know, kind of age of housing, and price of housing relative to the national average, but Overall, just get a feel for the market. Okay, those first seven steps are kind of uh, coming up with your deal criteria, um, just in general. But number eight is, I call it gut feel time. And then I, I think about, you know, will I regret this? And this is when I start to look at, from go from macro to micro, look at specific deals. Am I going to feel good about this deal? I mean, an old saying that I've heard is, the best deal I ever did is the one that I didn't buy. So don't buy yourself a headache. And a lot of that's gonna be gut feel, and it's pretty subjective, obviously. Um, and then maybe it, maybe it takes a site visit, or maybe it takes a better understanding of the market in order to to grasp what makes sense for you. And that kind of goes into the next phase of number nine, drill down time. As I say drill down like this. This is mobile home park by mobile home park. You can't. This is not going to be at a macro level, but really begin to do a detailed financial analysis. Begin getting bids to kind of firm up your numbers. Do things like review the property tax bill. If you're buying a park for 800,000 and it's on the books for 200,000 now, there's possibly or probably going to be a property tax increase. What does that do to your income? What does that do to your deal? I'm going to go get into property tax appeals tax appeals and property tax projections in a whole other podcast. I've got a background as a county appraiser. I was Jackson County appraiser here in Kansas City, Missouri in my 20s. so I've, I was the youngest guy in the state, had a 65, 70 person team. Seven million dollar budget. I've worked on hundreds of millions of dollars deals and tax bills, so I've got lots of opinions on that topic that I'm gonna save for another day. But you got to be in the middle of the property tax projection. I'll tell you that. Next, on that, in the same vein, you want to look at the seller financials. You want to question your assumptions, question their assumptions, and continually revi- revise and review your numbers. If you can get a third person to do a deal review or just second guess your numbers, that's great. Um, you don't want to make a mistake. Run your numbers, run your numbers, run your numbers throughout the process. After you get through those those nine steps, you're starting to kind of get a feel for what you want, and you're drilling down on a specific deal. Well, now it's time to put pen to paper and draft a letter of intent. A letter of intent is basically an offer to purchase. It sets forth the terms at which you would be comfortable to, you know, things like purchase price, earnest money amount, due diligence period, closing period, seller representations, maybe allocation of the purchase price. Location of the property clearly, buyer's name, seller's name, whether or not it's seller financed or bank financed, what due diligence materials the seller's going to provide, whether you get an extension, who's paying for the title commitment in the survey, who's paying for the environmental report, tax and special assessment prorations, buyers and sellers closing costs, any easements or any commissions, you know, I, I like to have the seller represent the zoning, um, a reference to the leases, and then any miscellaneous provisions. So really, that letter of intent's important to be detailed. I always make my letter of intent binding, and I don't know why people don't do this, frankly, because if I'm the buyer, it, oh, it's binding on me too. Yeah, well, I have a due diligence period. And I can spit the hook for any reason whatsoever, so I'm willing to make it binding on me because then I can terminate the contract during the contract period, during, during my inspection period. But I like to make the LOI binding so that the seller can't weasel out on me. And I have literally closed two mobile home parks that this provision saved the day. I've I even closed one mobile home park where the seller refused to sign a purchase contract at all. And I have in my I have in my template LOI, and you can get a copy of this by clicking on my website. I'll give it to you for free. I don't care. It's great. But there's a paragraph at the end that says, I will read it to you real quick here as I'm as I just pull it up. This proposal shall constitute a binding letter of intent or contract. Upon acceptance of this letter of intent, buyers shall prepare a more thorough purchase and sales agreement consistent with the terms herein for the mutual review and acceptance by the parties and their legal counsel. Notwithstanding the foregoing sentence, seller hereby acknowledges that it will discontinue marketing the property and negotiating with other potential buyers for a period of 30 days. The parties can draft, review, blah, blah, blah. However, in the event a more thorough purchase contract is not executed, this letter of intent shall become the purchase contract. Boom! You got him. You got them tied up. I had so I had it one time where a seller, the attorney, got back to me and said, "I don't like your contract. My guy doesn't want to sell anymore." And I said, "We already have an LOI." He said, "Well, that wasn't LOIs are not binding, so tough." I said, "Did you get a copy of the LOI?" He said, "No, why?" I said, "Let me email to you right now. Read this paragraph." He goes, "Oh, well, that certainly changes things. I'll have the contract right over." He signed. He had the kid's client sign my purchase contract unedited, no red line, because I had him by the balls, because I had this provision in there. I've had that happen on two different deals. Why would you not do it? If sometimes the seller will object. If he objects, well that kind of shows you what kind of character he's got. I'd say, Wait, why are you gonna object? I thought we were negotiating a deal here. Are you gonna turn around and after I spent all this time and energy and I'm serious about buying your park, are you gonna turn around and double cross me? It usually it usually leads to a moment of silence. And then they say, No, 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 no. You've kind of uh, you know, I don't say offended their character, but you put them on the spot. You put their integrity in the spot, and this helps get them to sign your, your LOI. After LOI, you draft the contract. You should probably hire a lawyer. Do you know a lawyer? I know a lawyer. Anyway, drafting the contract is important. I like to draft it, whether I'm the seller or the buyer. You can then make it a little more to your favor. And I mean, I have I have reasonable contracts I use for both sides, but there's a couple of provisions that I'll go through in another episode on the PSAs purchase and sales agreements that are a little bit more one-sided, so you want to be the one to draft the contract. Um, it's going to cost a little bit more to have your attorney draft it than not, but actually it probably generally saves money, because, you know, frankly, because then you have to re- your attorney doesn't have to read and review and redline and argue as much on the back end. So I like to be on the side of the party that drafts it, whether I'm the buyer or the seller. So there you have it today. Hopefully this is going to give you some, some good tips and some good strategies when evaluating mobile home park purchase. Um, Go through these processes. Find a friend. Find somebody else to help do a deal review. Share some of this workload as you get through the process to make sure that your assumptions, make sure their processes are sound so that you can get a hit, get a home run on each and every deal. That's all for today. Stay tuned for the next one.
0: You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.